Chapel, Mason City. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So last night we had the privilege of being able to worship with some brothers and sisters up in Red Wing, Minnesota. And uh, what, a, what a sweet night. We went to Calvary Chapel, Red Wing. And uh, what a sweet town, by the way, if you've never been there. It's just a beautiful place. We had a beautiful time. Our hosts took us all around the town the next day and just showed us. It was just great. Um, but I thought one of my nightmares was coming true. I have these nightmares all the time that I'm up in front of the church and trying to make things happen, but like the equipment's broken or something, or it feeds back like that, you know, or something happens, you know, and I can't get something figured out. And so we're, we're trying to get stuff set up at this worship night that I'm going to lead the worship. And uh, the, the guitar's not coming through the sound system. And I'm like, oh no, you know. And so everything looked right, you know, everything looked correct. But upon closer examination, I discovered that... Uh, there was a cord that was unplugged. And so I plugged the cord back in and everything was fine. Now, this is the story of many Christians. Everything looks right, but they're not plugged in. No power. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. In this very powerful prayer from the Apostle Paul, we're going to learn where power comes from in the life of a Christian, how to have that power. So if you ever had that question, how do I experience the power of God in my life? It will be answered in this message. And I think that's a very important thing. Right? Some people just seem like they're defeated all the time in the Christian life. They're not growing, they're not changing. This is going to answer that question, how can I have the power of God in my life? And it's a very simple message. It's divided into three parts. You'll see them there in the outline. The introduction, the petition, and the benediction. The benediction, that's, that's just a kind of a churchy word for sort of saying praise. It's like a praise section. Um, but as you can tell, all of the points ended with the uh, shun. So, you know, you have to do that as a preacher because it's, there's got to be symmetry, right? So introduction, petition, benediction. Here we go, verse 14. So for this reason... Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now that's the little introduction to Paul's prayer. So right away, right off the bat, when he starts off with something like that, for this reason, it, well, you would naturally ask yourself, for what reason, right? And if somebody starts talking, they just walk up to you out of nowhere and they say, for this reason, you're like, well, what reason? I mean, I haven't seen you for a week, you know, like, what are you talking about? And so if you've read and been tracking along with us through Ephesians through chapters one and two, Paul has just talked about all these spiritual blessings that the Ephesians have, their identity in Christ, the fact that salvation comes by grace through faith, the fact that God brings peace between Jews and Gentiles. And <laughs> he was there last week, remember when every time you hear that there's peace between Jews and Gentiles, you're supposed to go, ah, because it's just crazy that that would ever happen, you know? <laughs> The fact that God brings all people into a church through Christ and sinful man is reconciled to a holy God and that men and women are reconciled to one another. And Paul's just been talking about all these blessings. You know, I don't know, this is kind of an aside and maybe you didn't know this, but in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, there's only one imperative. Do you know what an imperative is? 
It's like a, you must do this. There's indicatives, there's just talking, indicating how something is, and then there are imperatives. And there's one imperative, that's it, in the whole first section of Ephesians. There's only one time where Paul says to do anything. You know what it is? He says, remember, that's the only thing. The rest of it, it's all like indicative. It's all talking to you about who you are in Christ. And so Paul has been talking about who you are in Christ. You've been adopted, forgiven, re, you know, redeemed, restored. Christ's blood has set you free from captivity, the you know, sin and devil and all these things. And then he goes, for this reason, last time. But then remember, he starts to backtrack and talk about why he's in jail and all this, because he's doing the ministry to the Gentiles and everybody hates him for that. And so now he picks up that point again. See, first of all, look in your Bible at chapter 3, verse 1. See how it says, for this reason? But now in chapter 3, verse 14, he starts again and says, for this reason. See, he kind of he did a, like a digression. The whole last message was kind of like backstory or whatever. And now he's going to pick up that same point again. So when you figure out what reason this is, it would have to go back to chapter 2 because chapter 3, verse 1 started like that. And so for all those reasons, Paul says, I want to pray for you. Now, there are two prayers in the book of Ephesians, right? The first one is essentially that they would know spiritual things, essentially that the eyes of their heart would be open, that their understanding would be open. And now the point of this prayer is not that they would merely know, but that they would be able to take a hold. There's a difference between just knowing something and taking a hold of something. And that's his prayer this time, that they would be able to apprehend, that they would be able to take a hold of these truths and put them uh, into practice. And so, first of all, we notice in verse 14, the posture of Paul's prayer. See how he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Now, there's a legend going around, and I don't know if there's any truth to it, that in history, there was, you know, a, a saint that he was walking one day, and he fell headlong into a well. <laughs> yeah, right? That's a bummer. That's a bad day. You know, how's your day going? Well, the, I mean, I did fall into a well earlier today, but, you know, they got me out. But, uh, so this guy, and the legitimate, they had a legitimate debate about whether or not he could pray. Because, you see, he was, he was headlong. He couldn't get on his knees, right? I mean, so the church tradition, the church, you know, leadership, the council gets together and you know, I wonder, can he actually pray like that? I mean, doesn't he have to be in a sanctuary facing towards the, you know, the cross? And he has to be in the right position. And then, well, they determined that he could pray. And so uh, kneeling before the Lord is not the only way to pray. Uh, it was my point here. And we see other times uh, throughout Scripture, we see different postures of prayer. In fact, the Jews, the common posture for prayer was putting your hands open and receiving, you know, from God. Uh, you know, and Timothy says, it's my will that men would raise holy hands and pray, right? Um, you see Jesus uh, bowing in prayer, which I think is the most important example. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father, he falls on his knees. We also see Stephen kneeling as he prays. Remember when Stephen was being stoned to death, Acts chapter 7, he gets down on his knees and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. So we see enough in the Bible about kneeling prayer that we know it's important, but we see enough of other types of prayer that we know it's not required. It does ask the question, though, doesn't it? When was the last time that you got on your knees and prayed before the Lord? It's a good, good place to be. It's a good thing to do to express that dependence and that humility and that submission before the Lord. When was the last time that he's brought you there? Going on, we see Paul's prayer is to God. Look at verse 14 as well. We keep going on in that same verse. He says, My prayer is to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
this is the common pattern for prayer, is that we would pray to the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with praying to Jesus or praying to the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, he's, he's God, and we can't really figure out the complexities of the Trinity. I don't think it's like bad, but in the Scripture, this is the pattern that we see, is prayer to God, the Father, through the means of the Son, the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Paul is doing here. And he says, verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's just talking about God saying that every Christian in heaven or on earth are all in that same family. That's what he's talking about here. And so that's a beautiful thought, though, by the way, for a second, to think about everybody that's gone before you, all your loved ones that have gone before you. We're still in the same family with them. We're also in, in, in the same family with all the saints. It's all one big family, all that are in heaven and in earth. So that's the introduction to his prayer. We're moving on to the petition, which is the second part of our outline. Now, the word petition, it just simply means to ask for something, right? You know, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. That's a petition, right? And we're instructed to ask the Lord for our daily bread. It's a good thing to petition the Lord for our needs to be met. I have run into the occasional person here and again that has said, oh, I don't like to ask the Lord for anything for myself. I only pray for other people. Well, Jesus taught us to ask the Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So I think you're okay to ask the Lord for your needs to be met. However, only praying for your needs to be met does show a lack of dimension to your prayer life. There are other types of prayer. Um, one would be worship or adoration. Now, that's just kind of something that springs up naturally. You know, have you ever been there in life? I'm sure you have, where you're just like, oh, God, you're so good. And you just, oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, my goodness. The way that you just have been doing these things in my life, you're just so good, Lord. You give and you take away, Lord, you're so awesome. Or, you, or you're out looking at nature and you're like, I just can't believe he does things like this. You know what I mean? You're looking at an inchworm going, eat, er, eat, er, eat, er, and you're like, why would you even do that, Lord? Or you're looking at the sunset. That stuff is so beautiful, Lord. Why would you do that? I always get tripped up with that one. Why would he make my human eye and your human eye pretty much for this? We could pretty much say anybody in the world could look at a beautiful sunset. And unless there's something sort of off with you, you could all agree, right? That like, that's beautiful. How does God know how to do that? You know, how does he know how to make please? I mean, so you could worship the Lord all day. And then the next one uh, would be a, a type of prayer would be confession. And that's where you bring your sin before the Lord. And you say, um, Lord, I need to bring these things before you, Father. Forgive me for this. I've been, I haven't lived up to your standard, to your glory today. Um, I've sinned in this way. And we pray, uh, you know, um, Psalm 51, you know, David confessing to the Lord because of his sin with Bathsheba. There's all kinds of confession. Another one would be thanksgiving. Lord, I'm so thankful for the things that you do. It's different than worship and praise. It's thanking God for specific things. And then petition or supplication, praying for our needs to be met. And then intercession, which is possibly the most, most laborious. Um, some people are very gifted at it, but this is standing in the gap for others. This is laboring in prayer for others. By the way, here's a shameless plug for Wednesday's prayer group. That's what we want to do on Wednesdays is we want to intercede for people. We want to stand and pray in the battle with them. And so you can come with your petitions and we'll pray for you and with you, but we want you to join the church and intercede for others. And so here's Paul's petition, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Holy smokes, pray that for me, please. Verse 16, first of all, Paul is praying. This is one intercession with different facets. The main prayer really ends, like the main intercession ends at the semicolon. The translators probably have that right according to, you know, dividing the word. So it's that, essentially, that God would grant them strength. And then the rest of the things are kind of results of when that strength comes into your life. So first of all, he says that um, he wants God to grant them strength. Notice that according to the riches of his glory. Now, that's, that's saying a lot, isn't it? I want you to strengthen these believers according to your, your riches, right? That's like, I want to bless, I want them to be blessed according to your riches, God. Think about this. If I was going to try to bless you according to my riches, <laughs> you'd be like, oh, what's <laughs> this guy's got like 350, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, what's he going to do, you know? <laughs> but goodness gracious, Paul is saying, be blessed according to the riches of God. Notice he doesn't say out of the riches of God. It's not like God has, you know, here's my pot of riches and we're taking out of it each time and it's going down. He's saying according to. He's saying according to the nature of who God is and all that he has. I want you to be strengthened according to that. From him is the source. That's tremendous. And he says that I want you to be strengthened. Notice the next thing there. The Greek word translated strengthened. Do you know that the Bible was written in the New Testament in Greek? And then the Greek words are translated into English. And so sometimes we just look at the Greek word just to get more of an idea of what the English is saying. And that word there, to be strengthened, that's the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamic or where we get the word dynamite. And so he's saying that I pray for you to be strengthened with might. That word might is the word energia, sounds like energy. The difference is this. The power, dunamis, is like power in a battery. Okay, It's in there, but... It's not doing anything. It's in there, right? But the power with energy means that not only is that power in there, but it's power working, doing something. And so that's what he's praying. He's saying, according to the riches of God, I want you to have all the power in you from him, but I want it to be working through your life, right? Now, that's, that's a good goal for a Christian. I, I want the power of God to be working dynamically in and through my life. This power is the enablement to live a mature, stable, Christ-like life. That's the sort of power. He's not talking necessarily about power to you know, do miracles and all kinds of different stuff like that. He's talking about the power to live as a Christian. It brings up the question, why do we need to be strengthened in order to do that? Can't we just choose that we want to be like Christ? <laughs> well, if you've walked for the Lord, you know, with the Lord for you know, longer than 10 minutes, you've realized that there's something in you that makes it very hard to be like Jesus. You know, I, I, have you run into that? I do okay for, you know, good 15 minutes. You know, <laughs> geez, getting better. Anybody need this, need this kind of power? You recognize that? Now, how does that power get in? 
going on there. He says, through his spirit. So the Holy Spirit takes the power of God, the Father, the, the Godhead. He takes the power of God through his spirit and gets this where into the inner man, the inner man. Now, that term, the inner man, it's important to understand what he's talking about. So just as real as the physical body or the outer man is the reality of the inner man. We all know the importance of having a strong physical outer man, physical body, outer woman. We all know the importance of nutrition and, you know, working out and staying in shape. We all know the importance of that. But also having a strong inner man, you know, I would argue might even be more important. It's funny, as I was studying for this passage this week, I was at the gym and I was listening to this in my headphones as some teacher was talking about this and I'm sitting there like trying to get all geared up, you know, and uh, he says, some people, you know, spend tremendous amount of energy working on their physical body. And I'm like looking around like, yeah, like I'm right here. I see him, you know, and I'm like, this is great, Lord, you know, like it's when the living demonstration, you know, and uh you know, and he goes on to talk about how the importance of being in shape in the inner man. Now, what would you think today if just for today, your physical body mirrored the strength of your inner man? I fear that some people would be walking around like walking spaghetti, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, whoa, remember Gumby from the, you know, back in the day, like the claymation, They're like, oh, how did they do that with the clay? <laughs> what if the only strength you had physically was just a direct reflection of the strength you have spiritually? Just like our physical body needs exercise, nutrition, and strength, the inner man needs those things as well. Imagine if somebody would discipline themselves to work on their inner life as much as they do their outer life. You know, I was watching some of these people work out there, and even through my beats, I mean, I can hear them like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> get it, you know, and like, what if somebody was like disciplining themselves that much spiritually, you know what I mean? My wife would think I'm crazy, right? It's like six in the morning, you know, I'm out at the table like, yeah, Lord, bring it, come on, bring it, study that word, man, study the Bible, you know? But it's interesting, I go to the gym, I paid a personal trainer a few sessions and he gave me a checklist and I go through that checklist like clockwork, man. You know, I go try to go the same time. I try to go down the same things. I try to discipline myself to do the things and I'm by no means bragging or anything. Jeez, people at the gym look at me, they're like, dude, you need help? I'm like, yeah, please, let me go home. But the, the point is, is like, you know, we can, we can take a lot of care of our physical body. We put a lot of money into it. Look at our bank statement. You know, how many times have you invested in the health of your physical body in the last... You get the point. What if somebody was to treat the spiritual inner man with that same care? And we should, and we should, and we do, and that's a good thing. How do we receive this strength, though? So it's, Paul's praying for this, but how do we receive this sort of strength? Well, it's through disciplining ourselves toward godliness, disciplining ourselves toward godliness. The Bible does command us to work out spiritually. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I'd like you to look at this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, Reject profane and old wives' fables. That's not the part I want you to focus on. Exercise yourself toward godliness. 
Now that word exercise right there in the Greek, uh, we're not trying to have a heavy Greek lesson, it means, it's the word gymnazo. Does anybody know what that sounds like? Gym, it's where we get our word gymnasium. And so what he's saying right there is go to the gym spiritually. There's another verse. The next verse, in fact. If you kept reading, you'd run right into it. He says this, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. It's good to work out. It profits a little. But godliness, exercising and disciplining yourself towards godliness, that's always profitable. It's profitable because that eternal life that you're working on, that's eternal life. That goes forever. You're preparing yourself now for all kinds of things. This is a preparation time. And so what you're doing with that inner man, this has internal or eternal, I'm sorry, internal and eternal. uh, You know, it goes forever. It's of eternal value. Plus also, too, I just want to add this as an aside, is the more that you work on the inner man, the more you become a blessing to the people that are outside of you, too. Now, so how do we receive this strength? It's through disciplining ourselves toward godliness, feeding on the word daily, praying, attending church, Bible studies, fasting, praise and worship, spending quiet time with God, meditating on scripture, not just reading it, chewing it, trusting him, obeying him, giving up our agendas and yielding ourselves fully to his control. All of these spiritual bliss disciplines, these are how God imparts strength to the believer. And so when Paul's praying for them that they would receive strength, it's through the means of these things that they receive strength and how we do. More about the inner man, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. I love this one. This says, Therefore we don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The outer man, unfortunately, has fallen apart, you know, and I'm noticing that more and more as I get older. I just, I mean, holy smokes, you know, these bodies, they do things that you just didn't even think they would do. But good news, the the inner man is being renewed day by day. So that's the first part of Paul's prayer is that they would be strengthened in this inner man and the inner woman. Now, verse 17, that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Now, there are a couple of words translated dwell in the New Testament. You see that in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. One of the words that's translated dwell or come in just simply means to go into a place. There's another word in the New Testament translated dwell that means to come and settle down and be at home in. Which one do you think this one is? The second one. That's right. So Paul's saying, I want you to be strengthened in the inner man so that Christ can have rule and reign inside. And so you know, you've surrendered your agenda and he's strong in you so that he may dwell in your heart through faith so that he may come in and settle down and make himself at home through faith. Now, faith is the means of how this happens. As you're trusting in Jesus, that's the means of how it happens. Now, for Christ to come and dwell. Now, let me clarify something. You remember he's speaking to Christians, Okay, so when you become a Christian, Jesus comes and he moves in. Every Christian, no matter what, if you are a Christian, Jesus comes and lives inside of you when you are converted. 
And so he's not talking about that. He's talking about Christ being at home in the new place that he's moved into. You see, Aaron and I, we like to go and visit our dear friends down in Ames and uh, Kevin and Lori, Calvary Chapel Ames, just dear friends. And we love to go spend time down there. And uh, we go down I-35. And every time we go down I-35, I, you know, I, we drive by this house that triggers this memory that I have from the time I was a young, younger. I, was, I wasn't a young, young kid, but you know, I was eight, eight-ish. And I spent the night at this kid's house. And this is the house. I see. And, uh, you know, you know, it was going pretty well. You know, we were playing G.I. Joe's and everything else. And it uh, came time to go to bed, and I noticed in one room uh, something. And then so I called my mom, and I was like, I got to come home, you know. And I think I lied to her. I told her, you know, I was telling her stuff, just whatever, to come get me, you know, like, Mom, please, you know, I'm scared, you know, or whatever. But the truth was is that in one of the rooms, it was like there was excrement on the floor, of some animal or something that I found. I don't know, maybe somebody wasn't taking care of the cat litter box or something. But I saw that and I was like, I do not want to dwell here. I don't feel at home in this place. I want to go. I felt bad. I never talked to the guy again. I mean, I was very mature at that age, you know. But, uh, you know, that's the idea. I didn't want to dwell in that house. I didn't want to settle down. I didn't want to be calm there. I wanted my mom to come get me as soon as she possibly could. Now, this is what Paul's saying is, I want Christ to feel comfortable dwelling within you. Now, here's the story. A lot of Christians, Christ you know, moves in there, but he's not so comfortable. Some people just take him and say, you've got to stay in the back room. <laughs> you can't have full access. I'm just going gonna, gonna to stick you back in the little guest room. But I'm having friends over tonight, so stay back there because I don't know if you'd really get along with these friends that I have. Jesus, why don't you just stay in the back room tonight because we're going to watch this show that, like, you know, I don't, I don't think you'd really like it. Uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to read this book. He doesn't feel at home a lot of times in people because there's stuff like, you know, occult practice and witchcraft and new age and, and uh, you know, false ideas about God. There's unforgiveness, there's sin, there's, you know, sinful language, there's hurtful things all going on. And those things make Christ uncomfortable to dwell in you and me. <coughs> in fact, there's a really good book about this by a guy named Robert Munger. He wrote this book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's just a little pamphlet. They actually made it a kid's book, too. It's a beautiful picture of this. Just a real short read. You can read it in a half hour. So Paul's praying that they would be strengthened so Christ would be prevalent inside and not the old dead, dirty self. So Christ would be in there, strengthened. And then at that rate, he's going to feel okay with dwelling within you. That's a good prayer. I mean, Lord, have full access. I don't want you to just tuck you around in the back room. You can have full access. And when you give Christ that kind of access to your house, you know, Steve, I think C.S. Lewis talked about this a little bit. Like, he's going to come in and he's going to start cleaning up the place, you know. And uh, he's also going to come in and start maybe getting rid of some stuff. And uh, he may eventually start breaking down some walls. You're like, I knew you were going to come in and clean things up. I didn't know you were going to remodel. Yeah, he's knocking down walls. He's putting on a new addition here. He's taking some off here. He's, he's, uh, uh, he's at work. 
And that's the idea is, is to say, Lord, just have free reign of me. Just take my whole life and just do what you want with it. It's a beautiful thing that he wants to do that. I can't even believe that he'd want to do that with me, that he'd want to come inside and live with me, clean me up from the inside out. You can have it all, Jesus. John 14, 23, he's talking about this. Let me show you this verse. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? He will come make his home within you. I don't know why, but when I was preparing this message, I kept getting that old Motel 6 commercial stuck in my... We'll leave the light on for you, you know? And the whole idea is it's communicating like it's a homey feeling, you know? And you could think of a homey feeling and you read this verse and he wants to make his home within you. He wants to, you remember when he stayed with, you know, Mary and Martha at their home and Lazarus? I mean, he was comfortable there, right? Do you remember when the angels of the Lord in the Old Testament came to Moses' home, or uh, Abraham's home, excuse me, and, and he had him come in? And, you know, remember they made him some, the angels some food and all that? Or that was actually the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus came in and stayed in Abraham's house. And, and remember when the angels went into Sodom, though, and they weren't very comfortable staying at Lot's house, you know? It's the difference. I want Jesus to be comfortable staying within me. Lord, make that so. He goes on and says that you, verse 17, being rooted and grounded in love. Now Paul turns to some plant language. Roots not only um, nourish, bring the nourishment in, but they also stabilize. He wants you to be stabilized in God's love. And he also says grounded. And now this is some construction language. This has to do with the foundation. And I did bring a picture uh, to illustrate. <laughs> Very famous, you know, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And no, that's not the Leaning Tower of Pizza. All right, Michelangelo, uh, you Ninja Turtles. Um, that's the Leaning Tower of, of Pisa. And so, you know, there was problems with the soil. And so they debated on whether they should keep going. They, they fortified the soil a little bit. They kept going. But this is the idea, right, of a foundation. Now, this is a picture of some Christians. You know, they're kind of off because the foundation is off. They're not rooted and grounded in God's love. They're rooted and grounded in things like legalism. If I do the right things, then God will love me. Or they're rooted in false teaching. Or they're rooted in no teaching. Or they're rooted in their feelings. And that's what that produces. Not quite right. Here's the thing about that. You can't go up too much higher, can you? You got to kind of stop there. And there's a lot of Christians where their growth is absolutely stunted and it's not going to go any further because the foundation is skewed. Now, I don't think that there's a, this is kind of an aside, but I don't think there could be a better goal for a parent than to say that I have labored to know that my child is rooted and grounded in God's love. Now, there are a lot of people that approach parenting by just telling their kids what to do. And that's great for a period of time, but eventually they need to know why. They need to know who they are in Christ. The same reason that Paul takes three chapters to lay the doctrinal foundation before one imperative ever comes in in chapter four. It's the same, same principle. Is I need the foundation of why I'm doing these things. This is why so many Christians, the second, so many kid Christians, the second that they can get away from their parents and go do what they want, they just start going and living in a life of sin and debauchery because they don't even understand who they are in Christ. And they go and they make shambles of their lives and they run into all this pain. And they say, why didn't somebody tell me who I am and give me the foundation? Because this is what I did at college. I went, I started out here and went, you know what I mean? And uh, some of them actually toppled before this 
state. Boy, we have milked that illustration till it, you know, okay, that picture's like smoking, like, please be done with me. Rooted and grounded in love. Now, he goes on, verse 18, he says, to know the love of Christ. So you're rooted and grounded in love, and he's praying that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now, comprehend here, this, the idea of this word is, you know, you think of those, you see a monkey that's got the tail where they grab a hold of the branch and they, uh, you know, whoosh, whoosh, by their tail. That's the idea of grabbing a hold of something here. And he doesn't want them to just, um, you know, know the love of God. He wants them to grab a hold of it. And then where he says the width and the length and the depth and the height, he's saying that God's love has so many dimensions, you know. It's just vast and it's multidimensioned. He says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now, I love that statement. Does that stand out to you? I want you to know something that passes knowledge. I want you to know something that can't be known. That's a beautiful thing. Only the Holy Spirit can do those things in our lives to teach us something that cannot be fully known, right? In this case, the love of God. To know means to know by experience. Different words for the word know. It means to know by experience. Paul wants them to know by experience the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It reminds me of the little boy that asked his mom how many stars there were, and she said, more than all the grains of sand on the beach. And a week later, she sees the little boy at the beach, and he's like trying to count the sand. And it's like, he just didn't understand the concept. It's just, you can't know it. <laughs> the love of God is like that. The love of God is beyond human comprehension. His love is eternal. I don't understand that. His love is undeserved. I don't get it. His love is pure. I can't follow that. His love is relentless. It makes no sense to me. His love is for the unlovely. His love pursues. His love led him to a horrific death on the behalf of sinners. And he says, I want you in verse 19 to be filled with all the fullness of God, to be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the result of all this prayer. The end result, he wants them to be strengthened so that Christ might dwell within them, that they would be rooted and grounded in love, and that they would be able to comprehend what this means, the love of Christ in their lives, and so that they would live lives that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what this means is there isn't any area in your life that you have not submitted to the control of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think this is going to happen this side of eternity, um, but it is a good goal. This is a good thing. I want to be fully under control of the Lord in every area of my life. And I know that as we go, as Christians, as we go through life, I know that he gets more control of certain areas. It kind of reminds you of Joshua going into the promised land and in the conquest, he's taking out the different, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, you know, and he's going around and doing that different, different stuff. And, and it's almost like Jesus is doing that within you. He's going out and he's taking out lust and he's taking out anger and he's taking out gluttony and he's taking out all these different things and he's cleaning house. I don't know if he'll get a hold of the whole thing this side of eternity. Um, I, I wish he would. And that's a good goal for a Christian. Lord, Take full control of me. No wonder that he ends this section like this in verse 20 and 21, our last point. He goes to the benediction. And he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power uh, that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
the praise for God's power. I like to do this with this sentence, right? This, this one in verse 20. Uh, you know, God is able, right? We forget that sometimes, that God is able, you know? Like I get into a small size problem, I say God's able, but I get into a big size problem, I say, I don't know if God's able, you know? But this verse, what I like to do with this verse is think about it like this. He's, he's able to do what we ask. He's able to do what we think. He's able to do what we ask or think. He's able to do all that we ask or think. He's able to do above all that we ask or think. He's able to abundantly above all do all than, than we ask or think. Right? You see, you keep adding the superlatives. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, right? <laughs> like Paul laid every single word in there that he could get in there. He's like, does anybody have any more ink over here? Is more paper? He's like, we're running out of paper, Paul. Come on. I mean, these, <laughs> these things are only so long. No, there's exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. He's like, why? You know, he's like, this God, this God. Now, there's so much that God desires to do in and through your life. So much. But the Bible says that we don't have because we don't what? Remember that in the book of James? You don't have because you don't what? Because you don't ask. Right. Now, there's no shame in praying small prayers. There was a guy that wrote a book a few years ago about circle prayers. And in that book, he kind of tried to make people feel like they needed to be praying bigger prayers. And I appreciate his heart behind that. But I, I got to tell you, there's, there's nothing wrong with praying small prayers. But if this is true, if God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, I mean, you know, go ahead. Why not, why not ask God to do some big things in your life? Why don't we ask him for huge things? Lord, I want to lead one person to Christ in my whole life as a Christian. Okay, that's great. How about, I mean, that's more than like 80 some percent of Christians do. That's, that's really good. But why not, Lord, I want to, I want to lead this whole town to Christ, <laughs> you know? I mean, missionaries go like that to, you know, when, when people go to plant churches in Africa, I've heard some stories of some guys, they, say, they don't say, I want to go set up a little church of 10 people. They say, I want to take this whole, let's get the whole country, you know? And there are churches of like hundreds of thousands of people, uh, you know, developed these ways through uh, disciple ministries and church planning ministries. How about this? Lord, I just need to make it through another week. <laughs> well, that's a good prayer. You do need to get through the week. But why not, Lord, work so mightily in my life that I just get out of this whole funk and I don't dread weeks anymore, uh, you know, that, that I'm uh, filled with the power of your spirit and I'm victorious over sin and death and life and I've got full life and abundant energy in my life, the power of Christ working through my life. So I'm not sitting there going, how am I going to deal with this today? Well, that's good. You need to get through the day, but why not expand? Because you've got this God that can do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever even think. So why not start thinking? Ask, Lord, help me to think more like you think, right? Lord, just help me get off the drugs. You know, I've heard a lot of people just never be able to get off drugs because their number one goal in life is just to get off drugs. You know, you shouldn't make your goal a negative, Okay, and I'm not into all this power, power of positive thinking, negative and positive and manifest your reality and all that new age stuff. I'm not talking about that, but I'm just saying your goal in life shouldn't be, I just don't want to do drugs. It should be that I want to be an on-fire, God-honoring Christian because they don't do drugs, right? You see what I mean? One of the biggest mistakes that Christians make is they judge problems in life based on their own capabilities. Now, that makes no sense at all, right? 
oh, I love it when my niece comes over to my house. She's like the joy. She's a joy, you know? And she, I leave weights like dumbbells out in our living room because if I, don't, if I put them in the basement, I won't lift them, <laughs> you know, because I won't go down there. But she likes to get over there and exercise. And, you know, she'll, she'll take the little, little eight-pounder and be like, Ugh, you know, but then I have the 35-pounder. And she'll go up to it and she'll, oh, and she'll move it around. And she's like, I'm strong. And, but then she'll be like, you lift it, you know. And, and Kieran comes do this too sometimes and like, you lift it. And I'll come up and be like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no problem for Uncle Adam. <laughs> Do both of them. <laughs> I, take what, I, I take what boosts I can get. <laughs> but you see that she is measuring the difficulty by her own strength. Now we do that same thing. We look at the difficulties in our life and say, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord. You know, if I get stoked when my niece asks me to lift this weight, I wonder how God feels when you ask him to do something impossible, seemingly impossible to you. Start treating him accordingly through the things that you ask and through how you pray and see what happens. Verse 21, he says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, this glory of God is to be displayed through his church. And that glory is displayed through the church, through the purity of its members. That glory is displayed through the sacrificial service of the church's members. That glory is displayed in the way that the church proclaims the gospel far and wide. That glory is displayed in the heartfelt, heart-engaged, passionate worship where people aren't just mumbling words, where their heart is engaged when they're singing songs. That glory is displayed to the world through these things. That glory is displayed through the way that you study and exalt the very word of God, the way you treat the Bible, the way you submit yourself to the Bible. God's glory is displayed in the way that the church serves the needs of the community. And that's what he says, that this glory would be displayed through his church for eternity. And that's how he ends. And he says, amen. What a prayer. If you want to pray for me, just pray this for me. That would be great. Now, to display this glory... And to live this life that Christ has us to live, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be strengthened in the inner man and the inner woman. Okay, and so today, when we get into this time of worship, we're going to sing a song and we're going to worship together. And um, I want this to be a time where we are focusing on asking Jesus, asking God to strengthen us through the Holy Spirit into our inner man, our inner woman. All right, and so let's, let's have that be the focus of, of what's going on during this time, okay? So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today, and what a blessing it is to learn about prayer. What a blessing it is to learn about you. And we thank you, Lord, for the strength that you impart to us through your spirit, and we do need it, and we ask for it during this time here in Jesus' name. Amen.